Good morning, church. If you have your Bibles today, and I hope you do, would you turn with me to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. As we continue to make our way through this story of the early church in the book of Acts, we're starting today, as you just saw, a new series called Wildfire. It's based on Acts chapter 6 through 8. And what we're going to see today and in the next several weeks uh, is that in the same way that, that a wildfire can uh, just begin to burn uncontrollably and thousands and thousands of acres of forest can be consumed, in Acts, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, spread through the early church like wildfire in a way that could not be controlled and could not be stopped. Uh, today we're going to see that that was still the case even when the church had some issues and problems that arose that had to be dealt with. Uh, our passage for this morning is, is shorter than normal. It's only seven uh, verses, uh, the first seven verses in Acts chapter 6. But let's read this passage together as we begin. Acts chapter 6 verse 1. Now in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists, because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. And then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles. And when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. In verse 7, Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you today that we can come before you and worship your holy name. We thank you that we can praise today our Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Father, we pray now that as we open your word and as we think about it, that you would take these words, that you would speak to our minds and our hearts and our wills, Father, that you would change us and transform us by our time in the Word together today. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, already in the book of Acts, we have seen that the church was growing like gangbusters. Uh, back in Acts chapter 2, on the day that the Holy Spirit was given to the church, you remember that 3,000 people were saved in one day and were baptized and added to the church. A little bit later, 2,000 more people were added to the church. And then uh, we've read verses where the church kept on multiplying from there. Some suggest that the church could have been as large as 20,000 people by Acts chapter 6. And of course, while we love to hear that, we love to, to hear about people being added to the church, whether it happened 2,000 years ago or whether we see or hear about that happening today, there is somebody else who never likes to hear about people being added to the church and coming to know Christ, and that, of course, is Satan. Both then and now, Satan, the enemy of the church, wants to do all that he can to stop the progress and the mission of the church from moving forward. 
Because here is the truth. Satan will use, use anything that he can use to divide the church. And we've already seen that in the book of Acts so far. We saw how, first of all, he tried to use corruption. Uh, back at the beginning of Acts chapter 5, uh, it says that Satan put it in the minds of a couple in the church named Ananias and Sapphira to lie about the offering that they were given. And, and, and so one way the enemy tried to come in and take down the church was through corruption and through hypocrisy from the inside. But he also can use persecution that comes against the church from the outside. That's what we talked about last week as we looked at the end of Acts chapter 5. And we saw how the apostles were arrested and then beaten and flogged for doing nothing other than just telling people about Jesus. But that did not stop them. We saw that last week as well. They went home after they had been beaten and they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to be able to share in the sufferings of the Lord Jesus Christ. What an incredible example the apostles are to us in that. But you know, Satan does not give up easily. And since corruption didn't work to take down the early church at this point, and since persecution didn't work either, here in Acts chapter 6, he attacks the church through dissension, through people fighting with one another. And you know, this has always been one of Satan's most effective means and strategies to take down the church because when a church begins to fight with one another, a church is not very focused and effective in their mission in the world around them. And so this passage today is going to be so practical for us because we all know it wasn't just the church 2,000 years ago that got to fighting about things. The church today can fight about things as well. Maybe some of you, uh, even in this room, have gone through the painful experience of being a part of a church that, uh, that fought so much they even split and uh, had to divide into multiple churches because of bickering and fighting that took place over certain issues. It's sad to see that happen to the bride of Christ. And so what we want to talk about today is how do we handle the problems that will inevitably arise in the church without letting the enemy use them to divide us? How do we come together in unity? How do we find a solution that comes from the Lord and then move forward in our mission in the world to tell the world about Jesus? Or as our mission statement says, to make disciples here and everywhere for the glory of God. How can we stay focused on that? Well, there's a few key takeaways in this passage that I believe can really help us with, with all of that. Uh, first off, the uh, story from the early church should teach us that we should not be surprised when new church growth brings new church problems. Again, we've already talked about how much the early church was growing in the first five chapters of Acts, but even our passage, the first verse of chapter 6, begins with that as well. It says, now in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying. Now, is it a good thing that the number of the disciples was multiplying? Absolutely, it, it is. I know that uh, some people today are down on uh, church growth, but apparently Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, is not down on church growth because he seems to be giving us a running tally every time more people are added to the church. Now, understandably, the reason why many people are down on church growth 
is because you look around and you see some churches that are so focused on just getting more people into the building and into their services that they're willing to do almost anything for that to happen. They're willing to water down the message of the word. They're willing to to not even uh, teach and preach the true gospel in order just to make people feel comfortable and get people to come. But that's not real gospel growth. That's growing a crowd, but it's not growing the actual number of disciples. But what we see here in Acts is real, authentic gospel growth, where the word is being preached, where people are being converted and saved and baptized and added to the church. And that type of church growth should always be celebrated in the church. And yet when the church grows, there will be growing pains that come along with that. This week I saw the story of NBA all-star Anthony Davis. Some of you might be familiar with Anthony Davis. When he was in high school, uh, he was only, I say he was only, only six foot two his sophomore year. Now, he played guard at that time for his high school team, and at that time he only had one scholarship offered to a pretty small uh, college to play basketball. But then over the next 18 months, from his sophomore year to his senior year, Anthony Davis grew by eight inches. He grew from six foot two to six foot ten. And by the time he came to his senior year, he was regarded as the number one high school basketball player in the country. I would say that that growth spurt was a good thing for Anthony Davis's basketball career. But along with that growth came some growing pains. First off, his family, his parents probably had to buy him new shoes and new clothes like every three weeks or so as he kept growing during that time. He also had to learn a new position. He had to move from guard to power forward. He had to learn how to rebound and how to box out and how to try to score in the paint, things that he had not done as much before. And it's always like that. Growing is good, but growth always brings with it growing pains. That's how it was for the early church. Look at verse 1 with me again. It says, Now in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Now underline those words, there arose a complaint. I know you have never been a part of a church where there ever arose a complaint about anything because we just don't do that. Right? Of course we do. And in fact, it seems like the church from the very, very beginning has had people in it that had the spiritual gift of complaining about everything. Uh, even before the church was formed, when you go back to the Old Testament and you look at the people of God under Moses, remember how it said over and over that they murmured and complained about Moses and, and how he, they just wished that they, he had left him in Egypt to be slaves instead of bringing him out in the desert to kill him. And, and so the people of God have always been this way, expert complainers. And, and even here in the early church, when things were going great, when the church was exploding in growth and the disciples were multiplying, even here, there arose a complaint. Now, what was the complaint about? Well, basically, in the church at that time, there were two types of Jewish Christians. Now, remember, the the gospel had not yet gone out to the Gentiles. That doesn't happen until we come to Acts chapter 10. So all of these people are Jewish people. 
But there's two different types of Jewish people here. There are Palestinian Jews who who spoke Aramaic and worshipped in their Hebrew synagogues. But then there are what's called the Hellenists, which were Greek-speaking Jewish Christians who had lived for a time outside of Israel and had picked up some of the Greek culture and the Greek language. And now many of them at the end of their life had settled back in in Jerusalem. And, And so at this time, both types of Jewish people had heard the message of Jesus, put their faith in Christ, and become a part of the church. And verse 1 says that it was some of the Hellenist Greek-speaking widows who were complaining and were saying that they were being left out in the daily distribution of the food. Now, widows in that day and age were an especially needy segment of society, had very little means, very little way to be able to provide for themselves. And so really throughout the Bible, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, the people of God are called to especially care for orphans and for widows. That's what the early church is trying to do here. In fact, they're trying so hard to do that that they're going around every day. Notice it says daily distribution. They're going around every day and delivering food to the widows in the church. But... This complaint arose because not intentionally, I don't believe this was an intentional oversight, but because of an administrative oversight and possibly also because of a language barrier that exists between these two groups of people, the Greek-speaking widows were feeling neglected. They were not getting as much or as regular uh, distribution of food that was being brought to them. Now, in one sense, you could say that this is a legitimate complaint, that this was a real problem. That needed to be addressed. I've titled the message today, Bibles and Ball Drops, because that's what this was. This was a case of a ball being dropped that really should not have been dropped, because the Lord has called us to care for widows, and this church should have been caring for all of their widows, no matter what their background was. But it also needs to be said that the response of the Hellenists to this ball drop was also sinful. Because even if they had a legitimate grievance, and they did, they should not have been complaining and grumbling to the rest of the church. That, that violates a direct command that we find later in Scripture from the Apostle Paul. In Philippians 2, he just says very simply, do all things without complaining and disputing or grumbling. So so instead of complaining to the rest of the church and sowing seeds of disunity in the church family, what they should have done is taken the issue directly to the apostles, to the leaders of the church, and brought it to their attention so they could address it in a wise manner. We're talking about how new church growth brings with it new church problems. And I think there's a couple of reasons for that at least. First off, Issues can arise because church growth means more people, right? And it it means more people by definition, right? If the church is growing, then there are more people there. And again, that's a wonderful thing. That's something that we are praying uh, to happen. But if a church is growing, if more people are there, then that also means that more problems will be there. And that's just as true today as it was 2000 years ago. We've seen that even here in our church. And we've seen the Lord bring exciting growth in our church over the last several years. We've been praying for that, praying for the gospel to make inroads in our 
community. And it is exciting. And yet at the same time, along with that new growth has come new organizational problems to deal with over the past several years. We've had to add staff. We've had to add services. We've had to add small groups. We've had to change up basically everybody's location and time that you ever met in a small group class. There's been lots of changes. We're also in the middle of a building program. That's exciting to even need to be in a building program because of the folks that God has been sending to us. And yet along with that come sacrifices and inconveniences along the way. And just just in general, in a church, whenever you have more people, you're going to have a higher likelihood for what happened here to happen, for balls to be dropped, for things to be overlooked and neglected, even when you try so hard for that not to happen. And so when the church grows, issues can come simply because there's more people, but also issues can come because there are so many new different people in the same place. That's what was happening here in Acts chapter 6. The church was beginning to reach people from different uh, backgrounds who spoke different languages, who had uh, some different cultural expectations. And of course, that's a good thing too, right? We don't want the church to all look like the same. Right? We want the church in Melbourne to reflect the city of Melbourne. That the church in Melbourne would reflect all of the different mixture of backgrounds and ethnicities and income levels that we have here in our community. But here's the thing. When that happens, and when you have different people with different backgrounds, you're also going to have different perspectives on a lot of different issues. And that can lead, if you let it, to dissension and to division in the local church, just like it did here in Acts. And notice from this story that the dissension that arose in the church, it's not usually about some major earth-shattering doctrinal issue. Now, it sometimes can be about that, but more often than not, it's, it's not. More often than not, the dissension that arises in the church is about the silliest, most petty things that you can possibly imagine. Things that have almost zero to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I saw a story uh, of a church in Dallas, Texas, several years ago that split. Uh, Some people, it was a messy situation. Some people in the church were so upset, they actually sued some other people in the church. And when that lawsuit went to the, the court, of course, this caused great damage and harm to the gospel and the kingdom work that was happening in that part of of Dallas. And in the courtroom hearings, as the judge was trying to get to the bottom of what started this whole thing, he came to to realize this, and you're not going to believe this, but the whole conflict started because one of the pastors in the church received a smaller slice of ham than the child sitting next to him at a potluck dinner. This church literally split over a piece of ham. And over hurt feelings, and it just went straight downhill from there. You know, just to get really practical for a minute, I believe that Satan is trying to use this virus and different people's perspectives on this virus to cause dissension and disunity in churches all over the country right now. If Satan can use a slice of ham to rip apart a church, don't you think he can use this pandemic to do it? And and that's why, church, I keep appealing to us, especially as the months of this drag on and on, that we would do all we can to show grace to one another in our church. 
Not, not only with our lips, but even with our thoughts and even with our hearts. Let's, let's not do like the world around us is doing. Let's not vilify people who view this virus differently or who, who think that certain precautions should or should not be taken that we disagree with. If you're, if you're someone who, who is a, a mask uh, or not a mask wearer, and you come to church and you see somebody that's wearing a mask. Can we not think, well, that person obviously doesn't have any faith in God. I mean, that person obviously doesn't trust God as much as I do. Or they wouldn't be wearing a mask. You know, that's, that's what we see happening in the world right now. That should not be happening in the church of Jesus Christ. And, and vice versa. If you're someone wearing a mask, can, can we not look at somebody who's not wearing a mask and think, well, what a selfish jerk. That person obviously cares about nobody but themselves. I mean, how hard is it to wear a mask, right? That's what we see, again, happening in the world. It should not happen in the church. We should assume the best of our brothers and our sisters in Christ. Extend grace to those who see things differently than we do. And, and here's why this is so important, because Satan loves a good complaint in the church. And he doesn't even really care what the complaint is about. It could be about food distribution. It could be about hand sanitizer and masks. It could be about politics as we get closer and closer to November. He can use anything that he wants to cause dissension and disunity in the church because his only goal is to take our focus away from our mission to love God and love people and tell the world that only Jesus saves. That's what he was trying to do here in Acts chapter 6. The growth of the church had brought some problems, and if those problems had just been allowed to, to go on, it, it could have driven a wedge right through the middle of the church. You, you could have had the first church split in history right here, right? You could have had half of these people go around the corner and start the Second Baptist Church of Jerusalem. That, that's what could have been the outcome of this. But thankfully, that's not what happened. Thankfully, the leaders of the early church handled the situation in a God-honoring way. Here's the second takeaway that stood out to me in how they handle this situation. When church growth causes balls to be dropped, the answer is not for a few leaders to do even more. The answer is for the church to raise up new leaders. Verse 2 mentions the 12, which is a reference to the 12 disciples or the 12 apostles who were the leaders of the early church at this time. At this time, when they became aware of the situation and how this ministry to some of the widows was being neglected, they handled the situation right away and addressed it and brought a plan to the church for how it could be handled. Look at verse 2. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples, the whole church, and they said, It's not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So notice what these uh, apostles did not do, right? They did not go to the church and say, well, we've become aware of this situation, of this thing that's being neglected, and so we're going to go ahead and take care of that. Now, we're going to go ahead and add this to all of our other responsibilities, and we're going to make sure this happens. You don't need to think another thing about it. Now, that's not what they did. No, in fact, they said it's not desirable. Literally, that means it would not please God if we left the word of God to serve tables. Now, could the apostles serve tables? Absolutely. 
But was it beneath them to serve tables? No, it was not. But everyone has a different calling to service in the kingdom of God. And their calling by the Lord was to proclaim the word of God. And every minute that they spent doing something else was one less minute that they had to do what God had called them to do. And that's why in verse 3 they say, Therefore, in light of this principle, raise up seven men to put over this matter. In other words, the solution, they said, isn't for us to meet this need. The solution is for you, the church, to raise up some leaders and empower them and entrust this ministry to them. There, there, there is so much application for the church today in this verse, uh, especially, I believe, for those in full-time pastoral ministry. Now, I know that pastors today are not the same as the 12 apostles. These 12 men were unique in the history of the church. These were men who were eyewitnesses of the Lord's ministry and eyewitnesses of his resurrection. Not only were they studying the scriptures, but through the inspiration of the Spirit, they were writing uh, the New Testament scriptures that we have today. So these men were, were unique, and yet there is a common thread between the 12 apostles then and pastors today. And that common thread is that the main two priorities that they had should be the main two priorities that pastors have today. Prayer and the study of the Word of God. And, and I am so thankful, church, to, to be able to shepherd a church that understands that principle. A, a church that wants to free your pastors to pray and to study the Word because you know there's no better way, no more important way that we can serve the church than to do those two things. But when I look around at the landscape of churches across our nation today, I see a lot of churches that don't understand this concept. And a lot of churches that, especially it seems in smaller churches where they oftentimes have one uh, pastor that is on staff, and many times churches expect that one pastor to do every single ministry in the church. And so that pastor is trying to write his sermon while he's mowing the grass at the church. And, and oftentimes the church members will turn around and they'll say, well, that guy, he's just a not very good preacher. You know, he, he, I just don't get fed. And, and very often it's because he doesn't have more than 60 seconds in the entire week to even think about his sermon because of all the other things that the church has asked that man to do. I, I heard a joke one time about a preacher who, who bragged to his deacons in the church about how he wrote his sermon every week on his drive in on Sunday morning from his house to the church. And uh, the deacons uh, heard that and uh, they all pitched in and they bought him a house a lot further away from, from the church. <laughs> give him some more time there on the drive to, to work on that. But, um, but, but many churches today uh, try to solve problems differently than how they solved it in Acts 6. They try to put more responsibility on a few people. Sometimes the pastors, sometimes it's not the pastors, sometimes it's other folks in the church. And, and I think sometimes this happens even in our church. We have some, some people in our church, and, and some of y'all are going to, as I describe you, you're going to know who you are, who just love to serve. And because you have a heart to serve, you have a hard time saying no anytime anybody calls you and asks you to do anything. And, and so, you know, a need comes up in the church, something that needs to be addressed, something like this, a ball that's being dropped that should not be dropped. And so the call goes out for someone to serve. And because of the heart that you have, you say, well, yeah, I can do that. I mean, I know I'm already on the tech team and I sing in the choir and I lead a Sunday school class and I lead a life group. But sure, I can also, you know, be in the line on Wednesday nights and help in the kitchen. 
And that's, that's not the way that it should be because you can reach a point, and, and I've been there, a point where uh, you're trying to do a hundred things and you're not doing any of them well at all. And, and you reach a point where serving the Lord becomes more of a burden than the joy that the Lord intends for it to be. You know, if there's been one unexpected positive that's come out of this whole coronavirus situation, it's that many of the folks in our church, not, not everybody, some uh, are, are still, as our tech team is still serving hard each and every week, but many of the service teams in our church and ministry teams uh, have had an unexpected pause that has gone on now for, for several months. A pause in, in the busyness of our church life and all the ministries that we normally have going on and events that we normally have going on. And many folks have had a, a chance over the last few months just to, to take their breath. And that's a healthy thing. That can be a good thing. And my prayer is that when we get past all of this, and we will, and when we start serving in those ministries again, that we would serve in those ministries in a healthy way. It might be even a time for a reset for some folks in our church to say, you know what, maybe I was doing 18 things before and I need to cut that back to two or three and only do the things that God has gifted me and called me to do and to do them with all my heart. Because what we see here in Acts 6 is that when a need arises, the answer is, is not for the, the pastors to run around and try to do everything in the church. The answer is not for a few people to add even more to their plate and burn themselves out. The answer is to raise up new leaders and empower them to serve. Now, of course, these men had to be qualified to serve in that role. The, the qualifications are given there in verse 3. And, and notice the qualifications were not that they had a business acumen or that they were skilled in leading teams at their corporation, the qualifications that were given here were that they be filled with the Holy Spirit and with wisdom. Now, those are the most important qualifications to serve, really, in any role in the church. And so maybe you're, you're hearing that and that, that need to, to raise up new leaders in the church. And maybe you're hearing that and you're saying, you know what, that's me. That's me. You know, I've been attending for a long time. I've been a Christian for a long time. But I, I just, I have the spiritual gift of sitting in a chair. But God is calling me to do something else. God is calling me to serve. He's given me a spiritual gift. He wants me to use it. He wants me to be involved. And maybe during this time of this break of this coronavirus, God would bring you to a place that as soon as this is over and the ministries of our church resume, that you would be the first one to raise your hand and say, I want to be a, a new leader to serve in a new way. So that not a few people in the church are burning themselves out, but everyone in the church is using their gifts for the glory of God. That's how the ministry of the church moves forward with the greatest power and the greatest effectiveness. And in the last few verses of this passage, we see the result of the apostles' plan to raise up new leaders from within the church. That's the third and final takeaway. Here it is. The result of a unified church sharing ministry together is a wildfire of gospel growth. In verse 5, it says that the saying pleased the whole multitude. In other words, the plan that the apostles gave was approved by the church. And then Luke lists for us the seven men that they chose. Uh, now, a few things about these seven men. Some folks believe that these seven were the first deacons uh, to serve in the church. Uh, in truth, I don't believe that the office of deacon had been fully formed yet 
in the history of the church. Now, later on in the New Testament, Paul uh, would talk about the office of a deacon. He'd give us the qualifications for that office. You can read those in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1. Uh, But in the book of Acts, while we see the office of a pastor or an elder, I don't believe we see yet the office of a deacon. In fact, the noun for deacon is not used anywhere in this passage. Now, the verbal form is used. And so while these men may not have been deacons, quote unquote, they were deaconing because the word deacon means to serve. And these men were serving, and they were serving in much the same way that modern-day deacons do today, in behind-the-scenes, humble ministries to the Lord and to the church. Another thing to notice here is that all seven names are Greek names. Maybe you remember from a few moments ago that the widows that were being overlooked in the distribution of food were Greek-speaking widows. And so this is an incredible show of love and unity in the church where this church that was primarily made up of Palestinian Jews chose all seven Hellenistic Jews, all seven Greek-speaking Jews, to elevate to this position and to serve in this ministry. We find the name Stephen first, because his story is the next story that we're going to read about next week. And then we see the name Philip, who was an evangelist, and we're going to read his story in Acts chapter 8. But the other five men that the apostles laid their hands on and commissioned to do this work, we don't really know much about them. And you know, as I thought about that, that's probably how it is for most servants of God, isn't it? Most servants of God, we don't know their names. We don't know all the ways that they serve. And you know, when we have that same heart, when we say, you know what, I'm going to serve the Lord with the gifts he's given me. I don't care if anybody knows my name. I don't care if anybody ever gives me any credit for the things that I'm doing because I'm not doing it for them anyway. I'm doing it for the Lord. And, and when we begin to serve with that heart of humility, some amazing things begin to happen. That's why I love the way this passage ends so much. Look at verse 7 again. Then the word of God spread And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. So because the apostles handled this situation in the way they did, because the apostles did not uh, try to take on this ministry themselves, because instead they called the church to raise up leaders to oversee this work and to address this area that was being neglected, because the apostles stayed focused on the ministry that God had given them to proclaim and teach the word of God and to pray, because of that, some amazing things happen. And verse 7 says, the word of God spread. And I love that he phrases it that way too. He doesn't just say the church grew. He doesn't just say some people got saved. He says the word of God spread. As one person put it, he's describing the word of God like it's a vital life-giving force that's on the move that can't be stopped. And actually that phrase shows up several times in the book of Acts. The word of God kept on spreading. You know, the word of God is alive, isn't it? Hebrews 4 says that. The word of God is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. It just needs to be unleashed. And when the word of God spreads, the spirit of God takes that word of God and he presses it into the hearts of men and women and lives are changed. It says the number of disciples multiplied. And then it says this, which is so amazing, a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. 
These were Jewish priests that were, that were enmeshed in, in, in the Jewish religion and service at the temple. And, and many of these uh, Jewish priests would have been Sadducees. They were people who did not believe in any resurrection at all. And yet, because of the power of the gospel at work in their heart, they came to believe in Jesus Christ who died and rose again and became a part of the church. And so as the church is witnessing this and they're seeing one priest after the next, after the next, give their life to Christ and join the church, what an incredible encouragement it would have been to them that there is nobody that the power of the Spirit cannot change. And it's the same way in Melbourne today, church. There is no one in Melbourne that the Word of God and the Spirit of God cannot transform. I know sometimes we think that there is. We think we've got that one cousin or that one uncle or that grandchild or that atheist professor at school and that they'll never come to know Christ. Don't say never. We're about to see in Acts chapter 9 he can even take the number one persecutor and terrorist of the church and make him the greatest missionary the world's ever seen. This is the power of the gospel. It, it can happen when the church Leaders deal with problems the way that they were dealt with here. It can happen when the church leaders don't hoard the ministry for themselves, but instead they raise up leaders to serve. It, it can happen when the word of God is unleashed to do what the word of God does. It can happen when the church loves their world around them with a radical, sacrificial, and selfless love. When all of that is happening, church, just like here in the book of Acts, the gospel begins to spread like wildfire. And let's pray that that will happen right here. I want us to end this message a little bit differently today. I know I said a couple of minutes ago that these seven men uh, were not technically the first deacons of the church because the office of deacon hadn't yet been fully formed. And yet with that said, I do believe these seven men give us a preview of what the office of deacon would become. In the same way that these men waited on tables Deacons in the church today serve in behind-the-scenes ministries to free pastors, to free your pastors, to the ministry of prayer and to the ministry of the Word. And I'm so thankful for the deacons in our church who serve our church so well and so faithfully. And so I want to take a minute here just to pray, if we can, uh, for those who serve our church as deacons. And so I want to ask you if you are a, an active deacon in our church or maybe you're uh, on a year of rest from that, you're in a time of uh, inactivity there, but you're one of our deacons, or maybe you're even a retired deacon who has served our church for many years. Uh, if that describes you, I want to ask that you would stand right now and just remain standing um, so that we can pray for you. Amen. Church, let's pray for these brothers. Thank you, Father, so much for these men and Father, for even our deacons and our other services today, those who are watching online today. God, I thank you for who they are. I thank you for their godly character. I thank you for their wives who serve as partners to them in the deacon ministry. Father, I thank you for the way that they serve the widows of our church, even as these seven men did in the book of Acts. Father, I pray that Lord, our church would see these men and see their example of service. And Father, that we would desire to be servants as well. Your son taught us that greatness in your kingdom comes by 
becoming the lowest of all, becoming the servant to all. It's the opposite of the way the world thinks. And so God, just as your son Jesus took that towel in the upper room that night and knelt down and washed the feet of his disciples, Father, thank you for these men who have that ministry in our church. And we pray, Lord, that we would be like them. That, Lord, you would grow in our church a humble heart of servanthood. And Father, we'd be willing to lay our lives down for one another. And we pray that when we serve with that kind of heart, Lord, that you would do as you say in your word. You resist the proud, but you give grace to the humble. And Lord, we pray for your grace and we pray for your power. That the gospel would spread even here like wildfire. We ask it in Jesus' name.